A few years ago, I met Dick Van Dyke coming out of his house that is near Sarah Retreat Center in Malibu. And he was kind enough to afford me a two minute conversation that included thanking him for a book that he had put together um, and that my aunt had given me when I was in high school. Uh, the book entitled Faith, Hope and Hilarity was filled with religious jokes. And one that stuck in my mind had to do with the little boy who informed his Sunday school teacher that God's name was Harold. And when he was quizzed about that, he repeated what he had heard. Our Father, who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. Well, of course, even if he'd gotten it right, there probably wouldn't be much progress in figuring out what Jesus was teaching with a word that we rarely use and pronounce old style, hallowed. So what was Jesus doing when he taught his disciples this short prayer as, as a model for our prayers? Well, to answer the question, it actually helps to look at the prayer's other location. This prayer is repeated in a slightly different form in Luke 11. And in that passage, Jesus teaches his disciples this prayer after they ask him to teach them to pray as John taught his disciples. And the reason they asked this was because it was a practice of rabbis to teach their disciples to pray in a way that reflected the rabbi's theology. So if you would hear John or Peter or one of the other 10 praying, you would know that they were disciples of Jesus. You can tell a lot about someone's theology by listening to their prayers. So in one sense, it's a misnomer to call this the Lord's Prayer. We should really call it the Disciples' Prayer. And it's a prayer that teaches us disciples the theology of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is teaching us to pray in a way that aligns us with his concerns and his way of thinking about life and doing life. It is stating exactly what Jordan has been emphasizing about the Sermon on the Mount. This prayer is a description of the mindset and the life of those who want to identify with Jesus. It's a model that teaches us how we should pray as kingdom people who want to walk in the way of Jesus. In fact, the very first word of the prayer, our, reminds us that the way of Jesus isn't about me. There is no I, me, my, or mine in the disciples' prayer. What God is up to is creating a community, the community of Jesus, the church, that demonstrates to the watching world that there is another way to live when the often violent, materialistic, narcissistic lifestyle that surrounds us. And this little word, our, also reminds us as we pray that the community of Jesus' disciples tolerates no room for sexism, racism, ethnocentrism, class distinctions, nationalism. God is no respecter of persons. And those who join in this prayer must affirm the same thing as soon as they utter the first word, our. And then Jesus taught us to address God as Father. It's the Aramaic word, Abba. It was said that the first words of a weaned child are Ima and Abba, Mommy and Daddy. And this was how Jesus addressed the Father in every one of his prayers, except for his cry on the cross, my God, my God. It wasn't a typical way of addressing God in the Jewish context before Jesus. It was more intimate than the way prayers were usually addressed in the Old Testament. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us to participate in his relationship to the Father. In prayer, the Holy Spirit takes us up into the Son's communion with the Father because we are adopted children 
we have the spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father. And so we come to God as the parent after whom all our parenting is to be modeled. One who loves us just as we are, even when we return to him as unworthy prodigals, but who loves us so much that he will not let us remain as we are. One who cares for us in every detail of our lives, even having the hairs of our head numbered if, if we do have hair. <laughs> and one whose heart breaks when we as adopted children turn our backs on him and run off into the far country. And then Jesus reminds us that we pray to this intimate father who is in heaven. You see, the intimacy, the word daddy, is balanced by the awe and reverence that is due the creator and redeemer of the universe. And heaven, though, here is not simply referring to a location, a word, by the way, that simply means where God is, God's location, which is everywhere. Heaven here indicates how much more God is father than our earthly experience of parents. As Jesus put it in Luke 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we pray that this God, our Father, will be hallowed, reverenced. It's the first of three petitions in the prayer that focus our concern on God's agenda before we get to the final three that focus on our agenda. So we begin asking God that his name, that, that is God's person, God's nature, God's character, God's acts, be known to others as they have been made known to us. But you see, this prayer, this petition demands that we become participants in the answer to this prayer. Because asking God that God's reputation be reverenced means that we are asking God to enable us to ensure our success in hallowing or reverencing God's name in our thought life, our everyday actions, and in our worship. And right now, in our present social and political climate, hallowing God's name is really important. The reputation of the God we know in Jesus Christ is at stake. I mean, listen to how Jesus put it in his John 17 prayer when he prayed to the Father, I am praying not only for the men and women you gave me, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. And then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. Because the same glory you gave me, I gave them, so they will be as unified and together as we are. And then they will be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you have sent me and love them in the same way you have loved me. You see, again, we who begin this prayer with the word our make a mockery of this prayer, make ourselves liars, and ruin the reputation of the Father if we disparage or hate others. God's name, God's reputation is especially reverenced, though, as we seek answers to the next part of this disciple's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. These two petitions belong together, because the kingdom comes wherever God's will is perfectly done on earth, as God has already established it in heaven, where the ascended Son sits at the right hand of the Father. When God's will is happening, the kingdom is happening. 
You remember when John the Baptist sent word from prison asking Jesus if he was the real deal? You know, why am I in prison if you're the real deal? And Jesus responded, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, Christ and his kingdom appear precisely in those places where God's will is reversing suffering and poverty and death. And even more to the point, Jesus went about establishing this kingdom in a way that was contrary to our expectations. Remember when he said to Pilate in John 18, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews. But my kingship is not from the world. Now, lest we misunderstand Jesus here, he's not saying that the kingdom of God is otherworldly. He's saying that the kingdom of God is established on this earth by means of a towel and a cross, not by means of the sword. In the disciples' prayer, we are asking that God's will be done, that God's kingdom come, not in some ethereal, you know, neverland, but on this earth, as God has established it by means of the Son's resurrection and ascension. Or as Paul radically put it to the Corinthians, God's dynamite power of salvation is the state execution of Jesus, the cross, which makes no sense to us Gentiles, and was a stumbling block to the Jews. The Old Testament prophets' demands for social justice, such as we read about in Amos and Micah, will be accomplished. But Jesus is saying, not by the means that so many in his day and in ours expected. So we ask God that the Lordship, the Kingship of Christ, be made manifest now and here as God's will is done. What is implied here, by, by the way, is, is that not everything that is happening right now is God's will. Otherwise, Jesus would never have asked us to ask the Father that God's will be done. But even more, once again, you and I must become the means by which this prayer is answered. Thy kingdom come is not a request that something happen in the world of which we will be spectators. Uh, Jordan shared with me a, a quote from a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser that makes this point so well. To do God's will on earth as it is in heaven is to walk around earth as if it were heaven. That is the place of God's presence and the sphere of God's rule. So when we pray this in, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, this is no request for things to remain as they are. This is a plea based on our confidence that the future ultimately belongs to God and that we are a part of its coming. We are asking for an extreme makeover of the world that God has created and is in the process of redeeming. Now, if we're to participate in answer to our prayer for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, then we need to continue with this prayer. We need to be sustained. And so we pray for our daily bread. And we ask not simply to satisfy our hunger, but as Jesus put it in the parable in Luke 11 of the guest who came in the middle of the night, we ask for bread to serve another person who is in need. This isn't a trivial request, by the way. I love how Martin Luther defined what bread means in his small catechism, but I found an updated version of it. Uh, it's captured in a restatement of the prayer by a guy named Donald Shriver. Listen to this. Be present, Father, where bread is baked and where the price is set 
until finally we see it on our tables. Be present in the kitchens of the world so that the cooks who put flour and water together to make rice cake, chapati, or wheat bread will know that they are the last precious links between the will of God in heaven and the will of God for earth. Camp in the midst of our manufacturing systems that make bread, our distribution systems that make it available, our wage systems that enable us to buy it, and our governmental systems that can enable the moneyless not to starve. You know, I, I suppose we live in the midst of self-evident things so much that we fail to notice how much our lives depend on self-evident things, something though COVID taught people about toilet paper a few months ago. But what may seem trivial when we pray this prayer, it turns out not to be so when we're cold, naked, or hungry. Again, the fact that we begin this prayer with the word our reminds us that the worldwide fellowship in which we live is related to the bread by which we live. And the life we live is sustained not only by necessities such as bread, but by the indispensable act of forgiveness. This petition, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, is the only one that Jesus comments on after the prayer. He tells us that God will not forgive us if we do not forgive others. You know, the early church father, Tertullian, who wrote a treatise on this prayer, said that when the church prayed this prayer together, drop in volume when they came to this petition, because they took the word as seriously. God forgive us as we forgive others. Now, actually, the Greek word Matthew uses is better translated debts, um, something that the Baptists and Presbyterians use. Um, they go to their debts and we go to our trespasses. But with debts, the idea had to do with the Jewish understanding that perfect righteousness, which by the way is a word that can be translated justice, perfect righteousness or justice is an obligation that we owe to God. So any deviation from righteous thoughts or acts is a debt owed to God. But here's the question you might be asking, is Jesus serious? If I don't forgive someone who commits an injustice against me, God will not forgive me of the injustice I commit? And the thing is, is that he is serious. But we have to understand this correctly. It's not a cause and effect kind of thing he's talking about. He's not saying that our act of forgiveness causes God to forgive us. So what is he saying? He's saying that if you cannot forgive someone, you yourself are not someone who has been willing to receive and experience forgiveness. Duke University theologian Stanley Harawas said this better than I could ever say it. He said, in truth, we find it easier to forgive than to be forgiven. We do so because so much of life is spent trying to avoid acknowledging that we owe anything. And yet to be a follower of Jesus, to learn to pray this prayer, means that we must first learn that we are forgiven. The willingness to be forgiven, which may require that I have my enemy tell me who I am, is the only way that reconciliation can begin. To pray in this way, therefore, is to become a citizen of God's kingdom of forgiveness, to learn to have our sins forgiven. Indeed, to learn that we are sinners needing forgiveness is to become part of the kingdom of God. If we do not learn to forgive, then we will not be forgiven. We will not be part of the new reality, the new people brought into existence by Jesus. You see, unforgiving implies unforgiven. To forgive frees us from the vicious cycle of action and reaction. 
In fact, someone said that the church is a company of forgiven forgivers. We act toward others based on the gift of grace we have received. And if I have shut out all that is loving and gentle and good, I have shut out God. And the relationship that I have with God is expressed in my relationship to other people. The relationship I have with God is expressed in my relationship to other people. And then finally, the sum of all the petitions is captured in the last one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a, it's a strange request on the surface because we're pretty sure that God is not in the business of temptation. It helps uh, to think of it as we did the kingdom will of God petition, though. You know, God's kingdom and God's will being done is the same thing. Well, here, not being led into temptation and being delivered from evil are one and the same thing. The crucial word here is the Greek word for temptation, perasmus. It's the same word James uses when he says this, Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face perasmus, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And then a verse later, he says this, When tempted, same word, perasmus, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he's dragged down and enticed. The point is that the word can be translated, this word prosmos, can be translated either trial or temptation. And James goes on to say that if you depend on your own wisdom, when you face one of these trials or temptation, then what God meant to be a trial in your life will end up becoming a temptation to sin. But if you depend on God, the same circumstance becomes a trial that will result in the formation of godly character. So here's what we're asking God in this prayer. Don't let us be overcome by what could be a temptation in our lives if we did not depend on you, but make it a trial that will help us grow and be victorious. Now, what assurance do I have of this growth and victory? I mean, come on, we answer that question every week when we pray this prayer, because it dawns on us when we get to the end whose authority underlies all these requests we've made. We sign the requests under God's name, not our own, because we ask it in the name of God's kingdom and power and authority. And then we say, amen, which isn't the same thing as saying the end. To understand what amen means is good to listen to what Martin Luther wrote his barber when his barber asked Luther, how do I pray? And he wrote a little piece entitled, A Simple Way to Pray or his barber. And this is what he wrote. Finally, mark this, that you must always speak the amen firmly. Never doubt that God in his mercy will surely hear you and say yes to your prayers. Never think that you are kneeling or standing alone. Rather think that the whole of Christendom, all devout Christians are standing there beside you, and you are standing among them in a common united petition, which God cannot disdain. Do not leave your prayer without having said or thought, very well, God has heard my prayer. This I know is a certainty and a truth. This is what the amen means. And so I leave you with the words of an 18th century Greek scholar. When the whole number of the sons and daughters of God shall have reached their goal, a pure doxology will arise in heaven. Hallowed be the name of our God. His kingdom has come. His will is done. He has forgiven our sins. 
He has brought temptation to an end. He has delivered us from the evil one. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.